Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. Today, I am so happy to be back at it and to welcome Spencer Newell to the podcast. Get the story. Last year, I interviewed an amazing woman named Betsy Hartley, and that was episode 69. And during that interview, she talked about her health coaching business, Novo Veritas. And during that interview, she happened to mention her business partner, Spencer. And at the time, she even recommended him as a potential guest because, as she told me, you're not going to believe his personal transformation story. Well, fast forward to earlier this year when I welcomed another guest, Tracy Hulick, and that was episode 75. And I welcomed Tracy Hulick over for an interview and told her, please, yeah, bring along your fiance, the more the merrier. Well, (laughs) guess who that was? Yep, it was Spencer Newell. Man, the universe works in incredible ways, does it not? Uh, Well, it has taken a few months now, but I am humbled to bring you this conversation with Spencer. He is a music writer, producer, a health coach, a trainer, author, and one heck of an endurance athlete. And because he has done all of those things, you can imagine that there have been some highs and some lows in his life. And so today we explore that fine line of being all in on something or being all out, whether by choice or by force. Spencer has run the gamut in his 43 years as a high-level endurance athlete. As you'll hear today, he battled addiction. He sought treatment and recovery and has been sober now for eight years. And then in pursuit of a professional triathlon career and a high-level running career, he succumbed to overtraining syndrome, not once, but twice, which left him completely bankrupt physically, mentally, and emotionally. And as a consequence, as you can imagine, he went through some dark, dark moments that we explore a little bit today. His journey is so packed with lessons about the dangers of going all in, but, but the reward when you seek help and emerge from the darkness and explore peace on the other side, which is where he is thankfully at these days. So please welcome Spencer Newell. Well, Spencer, thanks for coming over. Yeah, my this pleasure. Is, yeah, this is a long time coming. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good to be here. You were here last, 
actually, no, it was earlier this year, this winter, uh, when Tracy Hulick came over to do an interview and uh, you sat on the couch behind you and uh, I was like getting to know you more and I'm like, oh yeah, you're next, you're next. So <laughs> thanks for thanks for being here. You bet. How has your day been so far? What have you been up to? Uh, early morning, was up at 4.30. Um, Doing... Yeah, so I, my mornings these days, I get up early, um, have coffee for about a half an hour and just sit quietly. Normally moo, my cat will come in, sit on my lap and then... By five, I'm on my computer doing music, and so my mornings, basically every day, are doing music in the mornings to because get a cup of coffee. I feel motivated, inspired, creative. That's kind of where my juice has come. So, um, come the best, and then uh, yeah, I do that for a few hours. Yeah, go vacuum or something, like clear my head, <laughs> and then go back to my laptop and. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Let's start there then with music because you, I know you as a trainer, mm-hmm. as an athlete, as a coach, but I recently discovered that there was this other side to you as a music producer of trance music, house music, EDM, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we can talk about the nuances of that. And when did that happen for you? When did this not, it it goes well beyond just like a love of the music because now you're creating it. How did that all come to happen? Yeah, I've loved electronic dance music since my college years back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I'd always loved it, Uh, loved going to shows. um, And it was, I guess it was 2019. I was deep in the triathlon training um scenario (laughs) (laughs) i don't yeah maybe trap who knows um and it was i just gotten done with iron man santa rosa and for for a couple years i had had this inkling like i at some point i want to get into music um and and to make music and and after that race i got on my laptop sort of randomly and um, downloaded some software and it took me about a week to learn how to put a kick drum mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. um, which is the thump, thump, thump. And it just took off from there. And, and more, more than anything else, I wanted to do it just as a balance to help, you know, cause I was spending all this time doing swimming, running and biking and strength and work. And I just, I wanted something different. Um, I think that was kind of like my gut telling me it was time to maybe explore other, other things. And, and that's when it started. So it's, it, it hasn't been that long. It's only been about three years. Um, but it's something that I just, I love doing. Okay. So when I, for music, I love music too. When I was 13, I had a little four track cassette recording studio Mm. in my bedroom and I had the keyboard and I had a guitar and I had a little mic stand. And so I would create really bad music when I was 13 and 14 years old. Uh, but that was the tool that we had. Now we have our laptop and we have GarageBand for lack of, uh, right. for lack of knowing a lot about software. How did you even know where to begin and what software did you download? Well, that's in, in music production, your software is, is, is your bike, you know, or it's, it's your main tool. Um, and I just randomly chose one out of the four that you get. 
Um, I, I know I, I Googled what does so-and-so producer, what software does he use? I'm like, oh, well, I'll use what he uses. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's where it started. Okay. okay. Um, Is it I, Audition? Is it? No. No, it's called Ableton. Okay. Okay. I, I'm geeking out now because, again, totally. I love music and I love to create music yeah. as well. So, Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that anyone who has a potential creative outlet in that way, now there's just so many tools at our fingertips. Yeah. And so it's great to hear it from the, from the experts that are doing it. Like, what do you use? It's, it's pretty wild. The software I use uh, and the plugins that I use, if not even the top electronic producers in the world 20 years ago had all this in one place in their whole studio. And so it, it's amazing the <laughs> just how, how easy it is to have a fully functioning professional setup just on your laptop where you don't need all these analog mixing boards and just this room full of stuff. What are your hopes for your music since you are spending so much time on it now. Do you have aspirations of getting it produced on for TV shows or does one go live at different venues or clubs with this? I mean, bottom line is to make music that I enjoy, um, which can be a trap for a lot of young producers or I say young producers, just new producers. And, um, you know, and I've, I've almost gotten that trap too. Like I want to sound like this guy or I want to sound like this person. And, um, but at the end of the day, if I'm not writing music that I like and can play back and be like, you know, pump my fists and, um, then, then there's no point. Um, so that's, that's the bottom line. Secondary, the kind of the next logical step is to start performing in venues, um, DJing at certain, you know, uh, there's Dream State, there's EDC down in Vegas, there's Tomorrowland over in Europe. There's huge, huge electronic dance music festivals. I would love to do that someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I'm probably a few years off, maybe. Who knows? Um, you know, and I got to be careful. Like, like, I don't want to burn out on mm-hmm. doing this, which we'll talk about more um, mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. as the theme. But um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, I've, I've gotten some attention from some pretty big electronic trance labels or, um, electronic labels, uh, globally, which has been a lot of fun and they've recognized hopefully what I can do as a producer out of my bedroom, you know, and, (laughs) and it's, it's been fun to release music on, on those labels. Um, so, you know, but I just want to learn and, and get better. I don't, so I, I do have a mentor and kind of a coach right now in the music industry and, one thing that he's he's said to me is the thing that separates you or can separate you is you know what you don't know. And so to have a sense of humility and knowing like I'm I'm only a few years into this. There are guys who've been doing this their entire lives. I started this when I was 39. You know, and I'm <laughs> yeah, almost 43 yeah. and it's so knowing having a sense of humility, knowing what I don't know and always being willing to learn is 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 really the joy. Mm, and this. I love that. So. I love that. What do you want people to take away from the music that you are producing? Because there's no lyrics. So you're not, you know, you're not necessarily getting into, oh, that message of that was so perfect and it f- fits me right now. But 
the tempo, the mood, the ambiance. Uh, what, what do you want people to take away from what you're producing? Well, there's no lyrics yet. Ah. Um, I've, I've got seven vocal tracks that are going to hit, hit, uh, hit Spotify over the next year or so. So, um, so it is definitely there, you know, from an instrumental standpoint, it's, there can be emotion. I think that's less felt than when you have like a good vocalist singing. Um, I, I just had this experience, um, the other day, um, this gal who just sang on a track of mine, uh, her name is Loka Vox. She, I sent her an instrumental. I'm like, Hey, can you put a lyric and a, and some song, um, uh, some vocals on this. And two days later she came back and produced the, like my favorite vocal track, not that I've just produced myself, but that I've actually heard in, in a while. And so she told me the backstory and how she wrote it. And when I sent her the instrumental, she was going through a really tough time in her life. And it took her two days. She went for a beach. She lives in South Africa. She went for a walk on the beach and wrote the whole thing. And it's, she sent me the top line, which is the vocal, right? And it was, it was all emotion. And I literally teared up when I put it into, um, put it on top of the instrumental and like played it all at once. It was like that tugged at me. And so that's what I want people to feel that emotion and to feel that sense of, you know, just vitality of like, of, of, um, of lyrics and songwriting that really can touch people's heart. And that's, and also you got to be able to dance to it. I mean, if, if you can't, again, if you don't have a kick drum, you don't have a good like driving bass to like get people off their feet and get people, you know, jumping up and down, then, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's so great that you entrusted this vocalist and writer mm. to, cause these were not your lyrics. She, she, she is the it. one that came up with the lyrics yep. and you just, you had the, the melody, yep. if that's what you call it, yeah. yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was telling you before we hit record that, that trance music is, if I'm tuning out the world and I just need to go for a run, that is what I will cue up every time. That's great. And I always find a track that's about 184, 185 beats per minute because that's my natural running cadence, about 92, yeah. 93. And that's a good steps. cadence. That's like, that's where you want to be, right? It's a little that's, hamster on a wheel. Yeah, but exactly. It seems to work. Yeah, yeah, it seems to work. Well, thank you for sharing that music side of you. I assume people can go to Spotify or Apple Music, look up Spencer Newell and yeah. download. Yep. Awesome. Everywhere. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever, wherever you get your music, those just seem to be the most yeah. popular places for people to download music. But music wasn't always your thing. You've had many things in life. And the theme of this episode, this I Could Never Do That episode that I want to explore with you is trying to find that space between being all in on something, because you alluded to earlier that it could lead to some burnout and then being all out on mm -hmm. something, uh, whether by choice or by force. Um, so I want to back up and get the backstory mm -hmm. of Spencer. So where did you grow up? And as you were growing up, what were some of your hobbies and endeavors? Yeah, I grew up in Western Massachusetts, a little town called Worthington. Um, only child, um, Hobbies wise, I mean, 
my, my thing my entire life has been in endurance athletics. And that started with um, cross-country skiing when I was 12. Um, I, I, was, I was fortunate enough to grow up with some, um, my two best friends, even to this day, they're both named Matt. Um, we had this group of cross-country skiers come out of Western Mass that was, um, it was great. I mean, a lot of talent too. I mean, Matt, I mentioned Matt, he's head coach of the U.S. ski team right now. Um, a lot of those skiers came into and skied on a development or development team level, like just, uh, you know, stones throw away from the Olympic team. Um, so my, that, that love of endurance sports started out of that. And it just, I mean, it brought me from Worthington, Massachusetts out to Bend and it just created this entire lifestyle for me. I ski raced in college. Um, I went to a ski academy for high school in upstate Vermont. Um, and it's, it's originally how I got to Bend because we were, uh, my, my friends and I, Going, I, I went to St. Lawrence University. Um, those two went to Middlebury. We had a few friends from UNH and UVM and kind of the ski schools back east. And we came out to Bend because it was the only place in the summer that we could ski on snow. And so we would drive out in between semesters, get odd jobs, you know, cleaning hotel rooms or working, you know, in a restaurant. And we'd ski in the mornings and work in the afternoons. And that's that's what we did. Um, and then graduated from, um, from St. Lawrence in 2002 and then did the same thing, but never went back. And I just ran it. I got a job in a sales marketing role for a resort here. And then you went, you went the corporate route a little bit. I went the corporate route, um, unexpectedly. Yeah. 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 Was, uh, I was thinking when you were saying that you would just get these odd jobs and, be able to ski and it's like back when you could afford back back when it was uh, back when people were able to do that kind of dirt bag their way through living in a town like this. So we're sitting, um, in North in, in West Bend, there's a apartment complex down by the Chevron. It's called Aspen court. Yes. We would stuff 12 to 14 people in a two bedroom apartment and live there for like a month. I mean, we talk about dirt bag we were dirt bags, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it was, we didn't have, we didn't have money for anything. We'd go to McDonald's and get 29 cent hamburgers, <laughs> put them in the freezer and have them for dinner, like a week later kind of thing. So, oh, man. so yeah. That was, so did you have <laughs> Olympic aspirations for skiing then or pro and was it Nor- uh, Nordic skate or classic? What, what, what was Cross your- country skiing. Yeah. Okay. I mean, both. both. Um, okay. I, I thought I did. Uh, I was never, I never got to the point where I was like, okay, maybe I should make a run at this. And then that I really solidified that when I went to college and then all the partying happened and like that lifestyle, um, kind of took over. But yeah, I mean, I wanted to, my, my dream when I was 14, 15 was to be a professional endurance athlete. I saw what my friends were doing. That was really inspirational to me. And I just, um, that, that group in Western Mass. And I just, I felt like that's what I wanted to do. Um, and that really fueled a lot of the stuff when I got sober. Um, we can talk about this later. That fueled the desire to have another crack at it and see how far I could get in endurance athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I was never, I don't, I was never, you know, close to being on the development team or the Olympic team. It was just, but it was a really nice gateway into endurance sports, which set the stage for, 
you know, trail running and triathlons and yeah, whatever else. But you got a little derailed there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> our friend, Mr. Crown Royal and um, Mr. X. I don't know. I'm ma- now I'm yeah. just making things up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I'm sure all of those apply. How did this partying take over and the drugs and the booze take over? Was it, um, you know, I think about there's a couple of ways I feel like this can happen. You know, one is just, Hey, I'm 21 and I'm having fun and I'm with all my buds and there's 14 of us living in an apartment and like, this is the lifestyle and it's just ski and booze, which is great, you know, for a couple of years, then, you know, great childhood, great, everything, great education. And then I think that there's the path of people that are, um, you know, have dealt with trauma Mm -hmm. in, in early childhood development. And this is a coping mechanism for Mm -hmm. them. Where do you fall on that spectrum? All of it. All of it. I, I grew up as an introvert. My my family dynamic was such where um, my dad my dad worked a lot, so he was he wasn't out of the picture at all. I mean, he was there. It was just normal working dad. Um, my mom was or and still is an artist, um, and she was a stay at home, um, but she had some issues with depression when I was, when I was a young kid. And part of the role that I put myself into was when my mom was sad or depressed or, or whatever, I would take over as, and try and be like the caretaker for her. Right. And, and after, you know, and she didn't ask for that necessarily. It was just something I inherently did for whatever reason. Um, when that, dynamics started to happen, you know, my crux in life is needing reassurance that I'm lovable, that I'm whatever reassurance of being a good music producer, being a good triathlete, being a good runner, being a good fiance, like all of it. Right. Um, doing a lot of work in, you know, psychotherapy and some counseling and, and other avenues I've, I've, come to the realization that early on I didn't get the reassurance maybe that a lot, well, I didn't get it. I don't know what other kids did, right? Um, And so that set the stage for me always needing this sense of reassurance that I was whatever. Um, Being an introvert. And an only child. And an only child. I sought it from other people, of course. You know, and my, I mentioned my two um, friends, both named Matt. Those two were both older than I, really took me under their wing. And that's why I was so kind of inspired by them that, and because they had such an integral part in like kind of bringing me into this endurance athletics world, right? Um, but as an introvert, I went to like my first experience kind of out of the nest, so to speak, was going to a private school in upstate Vermont for high school. And as an introvert, you go into a private school setting and it, I was terrified. (laughs) I felt like no one liked me. I felt like a loser. I felt, you know, I wasn't a fast skier and like all these things. Right. And then when I got to college, when I went to St. Lawrence, like I was hell bent that I would never feel that again. And the first weekend I was at St. Lawrence, I drank a lot. And all of a sudden I felt like accepted, lovable, attractive, whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that was, I was like, that's it. 
it was an instant love affair with that feeling. Oh my God. And all of a sudden, like I wanted to know everybody at school and, and be the most light or whatever, you know, the most liked, most, I don't know, you name it. But, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and that, I mean, I, I learned that behavior when I was 18, 19 and that persisted for a long time. Um, the reassurance thing is still something I, I deal with for sure. Sure. Um, I'm more aware of it now and like my being kind of inside knows that that's when I start feeling that that's when I need to do a little work to really examine that and explore that and kind of like deconstruct it, kind of get to the root, understand, and then move forward. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so it was, it was really that early dynamic as a kid that kind of set the stage for, for everything. And it is for a lot of kids, a lot of people, right? Sure. But, sure. Yeah. It's, it's unique, but not, but not unique if that, mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But not to not to diminish that, but it is uh, it is fascinating because you wouldn't necessarily categorize your childhood as a bad one or you know right. you went to a private school, your your parents were there right. um, but there was certainly void right. in, in your life that you filled with <sighs> dopamine of the alcohol <laughs> and drug persuasion right and how did it start to to spiral for you because it sounds like basically from your twenties and your thirties were a bit of a haze, bit of a blackout. Mm -hmm. Um, you were still pursuing athletics. You still had this job, but the most important thing in your life was the booze and the drugs. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the crutch for sure. Um, I, and to be to be good in sales, you got to be an extrovert, right? You got to be a people person, and that was absolutely a crutch for me. And so I I thought when I got out of school, I'd be able to kind of shake this because I that my senior year I was drinking a lot, seven days a week, you know, and gain a ton of weight. It was just unhealthy, and like I knew when I graduated, I was like, I want to change. I want to get back to you know being fit, being like being a little more healthy, right? But then I got this job in sales and marketing role and quickly found out that, you know, drinking, not on the job necessarily, but drinking in social events and that sort of thing was, was my crutch to have people like me, you know, Dale Carnegie, when, you know, whatever, I forget what the book's called, but oh, how to win friends and influence people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You got to get them to like you and like, listen and engage. And, you know, and I was able to do that through, you know, having a buzz or getting drunk or, or whatever. Um, that, that behavior lasted, I mean, for a while, but things really ramped up in 2006 when I, I got a job with, um, a high end golf resort here in town. Um, and they demanded long hours. I also was in a new relationship at that point with a woman that, you know, was, it, it was bad. It was toxic. It was really toxic. And I didn't like my coping mechanism there working all these long hours, not working out as much, losing my health, just like I had senior in college. Um, it just cascaded, you know, bad relationship, long hours at work, you know, all I wanted to do, the only way I coped really was, was to drink a lot and drink on my r- r- way home from work, drink during work, um, then cocaine got involved, like mm. do some cocaine after, after work doing while during work. And it just, so that, 
um, all those learned behaviors I had in college of drinking excessively, like I got back into that during, you know, from 2006 to 2008. And it was, so I really learned my alcoholic tendencies and kind of where my limit was and where I could function. Mm, Um, But it wasn't, it you wasn't, weren't functioning. No, I wasn't functioning. No, <laughs> not at all. And so that that's those couple of years were really the kind of the, the jumping off point to um, what ended up happening late, about a decade later. When yeah, I got sober. yeah, because you said 2005, 2006, but I also know that you didn't get sober until 2014. Mm-hmm. So there was an eight year yeah. period there. And it, um, I don't want to project this on you, but I'm just going to take it there because your personality, as you've described, is somebody who like you want people to like you. You you want to go all out on things. You want to be the perfect only child. And when you walk into a room, you want people to be like, oh my God, Spencer's here. And the only way that you could do that is to become somebody else. Mm -hmm. And, and it sounds like that's what the, that's what that was functioning. And that's what that, the purpose of those drugs and alcohol at first were for you. Then that shit turns on you, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And it's, it it erodes you. It it erodes, erodes like who I am and my core. And like my, it's, it's interesting when I got sober, got sober at 34 one of the first things I found out about myself was I actually wasn't this extrovert that I was projecting for the last however many years. I actually was this like quiet introvert, you know? And so you take away the drugs and alcohol and you try and live the same lifestyle. And you, I just, I could, I could, you butt up against all these things that are happening inside your core that, um, probably just gut and and your being are just like screaming for like, no, this is dude, this isn't you. (laughs) Like this isn't you. And you got to relearn how to do everything. Like I, you take away all the, all the, all the drugs and alcohol. I have to relearn how to work. I have to relearn how to sleep, to operate, to function, to talk to girls. That, that was a whole another thing, you know? Um, and I talk about it in my book, just, you know, it, the toxicity that I've that I'd had in relationships and with women, especially after that relationship in 2006, all the way until I got sober in 2014, you got to relearn everything because you don't like, I didn't know how to operate. And, um, one of the guys that kind of took me under his wing early on sobriety said, you know, you're 34, you stop drinking, you go back to the age emotionally you were when you started. And so I wow. felt like an 18 year old again in a lot of ways. Yeah. And not the good ways. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not no. the good ways. No. Um, what was your rock bottom? And I, I hate to use that trope phrase, but yeah. there was a weekend there was. that you just said, I cannot do this anymore. Yeah. It was fe- uh, February of 2014. I was living in Corvallis at the time. Uh, it's in the Valley. It doesn't snow there very much, but there were four, there was a forecast for snow to roll into town. And I had up until that weekend, I'd been on a three week kind of, or three, no, not three week, three month bender, um, doing a lot of destructive behavior. And there was just something in me that 
I just had this voice in my head saying, this is it. Like, let's do it one last time and let's, let's just knock it out. And I called off work, snowstorm rolled in. And for three days I sat in my apartment and I drank as much crown Royal and as many IPAs as I could, I could stuff in my fridge and, you know, in my liquor cabinet. And, and it was, I blacked out for three days. Um, apparently I was working too, uh, cause I was working from home one of those days and turn, comes to find out like I was, I was fine from the outside world's perspective. Like I was doing reports and like making sales calls. I don't remember a thing. And I just remember waking up on February 11th, 2014, which is my sober day, just exhausted and emotionally, spiritually, financially bankrupt. And I called a buddy of mine who I knew had 20 years of sobriety. I was like, I need some help. And that was it. But, you know, it wasn't, fortunately, I wasn't ordered by a judge to get sober. I didn't get a DUI. I didn't hurt myself. I didn't hurt anybody else. But, I mean, I could have in those years leading up to this. It was close. But, um, you know, something in my gut just told me it was time. And, and I stopped. Did you go to a treatment? Did you go to a sobriety house or any Didn't go rehab? to treatment. Um, got into 12-step mm-hmm. um, early on, which was very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, surrounded myself with people around or, you know, with um, who had had sobriety. Um, got more involved with the running community in Corvallis and just had some uh, had some avenues that that I placed myself in that were really conducive to, you know, living a clean, healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but that first year was was hell. I can only imagine as as a very social drinker, yeah. um, where I do enjoy, you know, a glass of wine, let's say five nights out of the week, I'll have a glass of wine. But even when I do sober October or dry January or something like that, even as a very social drinker, those first couple of weeks are not fun Mm -mm. because you're itchy and you are, and just the anxiety pops up every day at about four 30 in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. That anxiety starts to creep up and you're just, you're trying to figure out what to do to rid yourself of that discomfort. So, how in the hell, after years of abusing your body, did you get rid of that discomfort for that first year? Uh, I bought a pair of trail shoes and I ran a lot. Um, you went all in. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you were all in on booze and yeah. then all out. Totally. All in on endurance, back to endurance. Yep. Yep. It was. I have an all or nothing personality for sure. Um, and it's, it comes out in many respects in my life. And that was, and to be honest, I think that was the best way for me to handle it at the time. I think if I were to do it all over, I'd probably do the same thing. Um, you know, early on, um, listening to other endurance athletes who had gone through sobriety and that sort of thing. Um, the, this idea of transferring addictions was kind of thrown around with a negative connotation. And, and I looked at it, I'm like, well, if you're transferring one behavior, like a bad behavior, quote unquote, bad with a quote unquote, good, healthy behavior, then what's the problem with that? 
well, problem for me was I turned the good, healthy behavior into a bad one because I got addicted to miles, to elevation gain, to um, hours that I was running and just, I I mean, everything, stats, you know, all this stuff. Um, look, it kept me sober for sure, um, probably because I was so tired all the time, <laughs> you know, and so I didn't have that, like, that itch. I was getting the endorphins from from running and long distances. And I would, you know, it, it, there was, I mean, after that first year I was putting in a hundred miles a week easily, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes more. And it was just my coping mechanism. But, um, fortunately what came out of it was a, a passion for trail running and just that, even though as destructive as it was at the time, I was able to kind of turn around and like right now I, I, like today I'll go out for a run. I don't wear a watch anymore. Um, I don't know how long I've run. I just go out there to be in the woods and on trails. And, and most of the, the running I did down Corvallis was in the McDonald Dunn research forest, the OSU's research forest. And that place was my, was my, that's where I got sober. I mean, that was my, that was my sanctuary. Mm. Um, and so I'm really grateful that I went through that and used that mechanism as a way to help get sober because it really, it, it, it made running for me just a huge passion and Mm -hmm. a way to, you know, we come back to the, uh, like the theme of balance. Like that is how I'm, you know, trying to achieve a little more balance these days because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it just for not the sake of, not to put it on Strava, not to like see how many miles or vert gain or anything like that. I just do it to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I absolutely want to explore how that, that, how, how you've come to find comfort in that, because that it it is an addiction all unto itself Mm -hmm. of stats and comparison with other people, um, with podiums, with (laughs) races, with, yeah, it's, you and I are both fitness coaches, athletic Mm -hmm. coaches. And so we've, we've run the gamut. And, and so I do want to discuss how, how it has influenced how you coach others, but I Mm -hmm. want to, um, I want to continue on, on, on your story because you were all in on trail running and then you then turned your uh, attention towards and probably in, you know, incongruence with ultra running, you were doing triathlons as well. And that was something that once again, almost got you. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and as triathlon tends to do for yep. people who get into it and you decided that you wanted to pursue getting your pro card as a, as a triathlete, as a, as a guy who's in his mid to late thirties, which yeah. is kind of a late time to be pursuing that and yep. to, to be going all in. And so what was that transition though? Like, were you still doing trail runs as you were also trying to ramp up your triathlon training? Uh, yeah. And there's, okay. there's a little more to it than just kind of switching over sports. Mm-hmm. Um, in, I guess it was 2017, I was, um, mainly running, running a lot. And I had had some issues, um, it was early 2017 actually that I went through, um, my first bout of overtraining syndrome and by overtraining syndrome, I don't mean just like feeling bad for a week or two weeks. 
I mean, full on burnout. And when that happens, I'm glad it happened because, well, it had to happen to be honest, because I didn't have a governor on me. The only governor was my adrenal system. And my, in May of 2017, my adrenals told me to shut down. And what happened during that time wasn't just physical, it was also mental. And I went through um, into that summer and like early fall, some really, really dark times, um, dire times. And it was in October of that year where, um, and I don't want to get too dark too quick, but that was the first time that Um, I guess I haven't talked about this in a long time. Sorry. Um, I was, I was about a five minute walk out the door to go kill myself. And, uh, What stopped you? <laughs> My cat. <laughs> <laughs> God bless the animals. Your cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it was a rough time, and I, I, there was, there was a period of about a month where I sat in my room. Um, in my home in Corvallis. And I, fortunately I, I had a roommate back then, um, who knew what was going on. She's actually my business partner, Betsy, Betsy Hartley. I know Betsy. Yeah. Everyone is Betsy. <laughs> um, yeah, it, with, with the adrenal stuff and overtraining, like my body shutting down, um, like there was nothing I could do to really cope. And can I ask a quick question? Yeah. In there? Yeah. Did it challenge your sobriety? No which is amazing. And the, and the fact like I made it through that time without going, going and drinking was, was, I mean, I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, I mean, there was, uh, I remember that October, I literally sat in bed, watched movies endlessly with my shades drawn with my cat right there. And there was one day in particular that I had to, I had to shake myself out and I, like I had a plan. I knew what I was going to do. I knew how I was going to do it. Said like I had my <laughs> my poor little cat there, and she, her name was Emery. Somehow she clicked me out of it, and um, right around that time, right, right around that time when all this stuff was happening, my 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 roommate Betsy came home, and she just put me in the car, and we just drove to the hospital, and that was that was a whole another experience, which I don't want to get into and like how hospitals deal with potential suicide patients. But, um, luckily I was able to work through that. Um, moving into later that fall, like things got easier. My adrenals recovered. Like I was able to start running again. 
Um, what is the protocol for overtraining? I mean, it literally is nothing. Is that correct? Because there's nothing that your body will allow you to do. Yeah. I mean, so how I felt was you go out for a run and I was very keen on what my heart rate was doing. I mean, I was walking, my heart rate was 180 beats a minute. Mm. And like, I couldn't, I couldn't run. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. Um, and then with the whole eating is, is a whole nother facet of this too, yeah. right? To, um, and or, I wasn't doing any of that. Or not I'd, eating. Or not eating, right. Because yeah. I had lots of body image issues. Um, and I was very, very light back then too, um, which helped cause all this. Um, but later as that fall went, uh, I slowly began to recover. I slowly, my body started feeling better. You know, all the, all the stuff that, like all kind of the dark like thoughts and mental that that started to help or I started to kind of climb out of that. But then what I, what I'd done just like I did with drinking all or nothing, I started to feel better than I went all back in and I did it all again. And I just ramped up mileage and then my body physically, my, the injuries started to happen. And late 2017, early 2018, like I had had, I think it was 16 or 17, like pretty significant injuries just in a very short amount of time. And, but the dream of being this, you know, elite endurance athlete never died. I just needed a different Avenue. So I called a buddy of mine over here who was my coach earlier, earlier in my life as a, when I was a cyclist, road cyclist, I said, Hey, Hey man, like, I think I want to transition over to triathlons. I still want to try and shoot for this dream. What do you think? And he's like, yeah, I think you can probably do it. Mm-hmm. And so. And you were about uh, 35, 36 at the time? No, it was 38. 38, okay. Yeah. yeah. So five years ago. This wasn't long ago. No, this wasn't long this ago. This was not long ago that you called Mike, your coach, yep. Yep. back here in Bend. Yep. And said... I'd really like to become a pro triathlete. <laughs> that scares me. Yeah. Just to even say the sentence, it scares me. Yeah. And did you have, obviously, okay, you said you road cycling, clearly you're a great runner. What, what about this, this mystery of swimming? How, how did that play out for you? Were you? I'd never swam before. No. Um, and so I got in, the, got in a pool and just started <laughs> flailing. flailing. And, and I was training at um, uh, the Timberhill Athletic Club in Corvallis, which is a 25-yard pool. And so, um, like, I did no lessons. I, I was learning to swim on YouTube, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And then um, later, about a few months later, uh, I moved back to Bend and was able to get, I got, I went over to Juniper. I got into a couple master's classes, got some instruction, had a couple friends like watch me swim and that sort of thing. And, and really started to enjoy it until I got, you know, obsessed about lap pace, you know, pace and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, I was, I got, I got pretty efficient in, in the pool and in the water pretty quickly over a couple of years. Um, I was doing 10, 20 K a week. Um, pretty easily. And it was, it was fun. I mean, open water swimming is there's, I don't think you can beat it. I think like, and I, I do miss, I haven't swam in two and a half years. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that's probably the one thing I miss the most, but really? I, I don't miss going to going early morning 
pool so expensive. No, it's it's uh, that is hard. I don't know. I don't even think Michael Phelps likes to go to the pool at five in the morning. No one likes <laughs> to go to the pool at five yeah. in the morning. It's uh, but I I will say it is one of those sports that once you get in the water, you don't want to get out. You know, it's the only. I feel like it's the only form of exercise, aerobic exercise, where you feel better after than when you start you know <laughs> running you never feel great afterwards you're always just like Ugh. yeah uh, and then the you know cycling is tough you know you're fatigued after cycling but swimming there's something invigorating about getting mm. out of the water um but you fell into you did it again Spencer yeah. you fell into overtraining syndrome again in this pursuit of becoming a professional yep. triathlete and you had a coach, uh, yep. who you do not, it's, it's, you don't, you don't blame him because I think, as you said, in some of the writing that I've read, you were doing some things that without even his knowledge, whether it was extra training or not going easy on the easy days, but more importantly, you were severely under fueling yourself. Yeah. I wasn't eating. And that's, yeah, and you make a good point. This this is not on Mike. This is on me. He, and I, I, it's too bad that coaches get blamed for this, but coaches can only use what you give them, right? And if you're not giving them the whole story, then they're not able to adjust on the fly. And all I said was, yeah, I feel great. I want more. I want more. I didn't have, like, I wasn't doing heart rate variability at the time. So I like, I didn't have the data that was really like the underlying data that could have said, Hey, you're, you're overdoing it again, but I was not eating. And I, I remember I was sitting in a hot tub in the hot tub after a swim with the master's group at that time, which was chock full of pro triathletes, men and women. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there and this one of them turns to me and they're like, Hey, you look really fit. I'm like, Yes, I do. You know my secret? (laughs) I eat about half of what I should. You know, and that like, but but to hear that comment from a pro, I was just like, oh man, yeah, I do. That was the reassurance I needed that I was doing the right things. And so that just fueled it even more. And so, yeah, Mike didn't know I wasn't eating enough. And, but I kept doing it over and over and over. And, um, 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week grew and it it just kept growing and growing and I was getting faster, like splits, run times, um, power on the bike, like everything was increasing until it didn't. And it just in 2020, um, actually right around when COVID hit and COVID had nothing to do with it, I fell apart Mm -hmm. again and that launched into my second round of overtraining syndrome. And I literally sat in bed for four months watching Netflix. Was it as dark as it was the first time? Or did you have a better support system? Or I did because Tracy was there. Yeah. I love that woman. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm so happy to hear that. And so here we are two years after yep. that. And is it fair to say that that dream has come and gone of being, being a professional triathlete? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, when when I walked away, I walked away Mm -hmm. and I just, again, it's, it's, it's that gut feeling like I just can't do this anymore. I had that with, with working corporate America and resigning from that years ago, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. that gut feeling just took over and said, I cannot do this anymore. 
It's not fun. It's not fulfilling. And I, I just, it wasn't, I, I was so wrapped up into the identity of being this pro whatever, pro athlete, right? Because it, it dates back to when I got sober. Like I was all in on like, I need to change. I'm going to change everything. I'm going to pivot come 180 degrees the other way. And I'm going to go after this dream that I had when I was 14. And that's my identity. And that's everything I'm going to be. And then when I broke my body down for the second time, I think it was enough to really something in me just be like, you can't do this anymore. And it's just not fun. Mm -hmm. I wasn't having fun. Mm -hmm. And as we, as I kind of round the corner to, to where you're at now in Mm -hmm. life, at that time, and you still are, but at that time you were and are a health coach, mm-hmm. kind of a lifestyle coach. You are a trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, here you are in this position to help others. And at the same time that you're struggling with your own mm-hmm. identity. So my question with that introduction is when a person comes to you, an athlete, or even just a a recreational enthusiast Mm -hmm. who wants to change his or her body composition Mm -hmm. or learn to lift weights or whatever, and they're discussing goals with you, how do you help give them perspective with your personal experience and and kind of marry that with what their goals are? And I think what I'm trying to ask is if somebody comes to you Mm -hmm. and says, I want to compete in this or qualify to Kona or I want to, you know, win Western States or whatever, you know, insert big goal here. Um, How do you, how does that conversation start with them with setting feasible goals or boundaries or realistic expectations? I just want to know why. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have a strong why, then it's, it's hard for me to do what I do. Um, I can, I can help anyone lose 10 pounds. I can help anyone. Run oh, out. really? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, right, right. <laughs> I, and exit. Okay. Yeah. I, I can help anyone run a one thirty half marathon. I can help people do that. But if, but there's also, you know, there's plans on the internet that can help you do that too. Um, but I want to know why. And if someone is, has that kind of deep rooted why it's more compelling for me to, to really, to really dive in and dig in with them because I can be more honest and I can be more transparent with them. Um, I'm working with a couple of people right now who are dealing with various issues, right. And with injuries. And I think the value or the value I have with, with working those folks is I know their backstory and I know why they're trying to do it. So it's not like I want to run, a hundred mile trail race. Well, why? Well, because someone told me I couldn't do it. Mm, Yeah, that's, but, but then the follow-up is, well, why do you think they told you that? And why does it affect you? And so the more I'm able to like dive in with people and understand like really the deeply rooted issues, because that's what I'm about. Like I know, I, I think I know what my real core issues are and what drives me to do all these things and all these behaviors. And if I can understand that in someone else, 
it's easier to help, first of all, listen to them and, and ask questions that are, aren't just like scratched on the surface of whatever it may be, but it's just, it's, it's way more fun to also see someone achieve their goals and not to just post on whatever social media, like, Hey, here's my medal. I was a podium in my age group of from 44 to 49 at blah, 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 half marathon. It's like, there is some, I, I, that's cool. But if I know the why and I know the real drive behind it, then that's what fires me up. Mm. Do you feel like this work that you do with clients has helped in your healing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it helps, <laughs> it helps remind me where I was. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it helps, it helps balance me and it helps, I mean, it reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing now too. Um, you know, because it's, I, I mean, we've, we've already alluded to it. I was all about results, all about right. results. And now it's just, it's just not about that. And, and to see someone achieve something that's great and they get a result, but they also are doing it for really their core kind of help core, their core belief system is, I mean, there's not, you can't beat that. Mm. So do you feel like 2020 when you went through your second bout of overtraining syndrome, do you feel like that was just like, like a super pivotal moment to the Spencer that you've become now who is detached or attempting to detach from this former identity? Yeah, absolutely. It had to happen. I'm glad it did. And I'm glad it happened then. And I'm not still in that, in that kind of that mindset. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm grateful for the fact like it happened, but I was able to be aware enough that I needed to address some deeply kind of the deeper rooted issue to the matter. Cause if I didn't do that, then I would just do it. I'd just be doing in music. Now I'd be <laughs> all about Spotify plays and downloads and, and that would drive me. I would just, you know, there's a, there's an app on, you can get that shows you all the stats of people who've listened to your music and that sort of thing. I would be sitting there all day. It's, it'd be, I'd be transferring Strava for that app, you know, constantly looking at like my stats. Right. And so to, to go through that process of overtraining and just, and just have to reexamine what my why was, you know, I'm so glad it happened when it did. I'm again, I'm about to turn 43. Like I don't, I don't want to have to go through that again. It just, it's, I don't have many more like, like misses like that. And like and those burnout, like all in burnout, all in burnout. Like it's those cycles have, are, I feel like they're starting to catch up with me. Uh, well they have, I mean, there's proof, mm -hmm. um, with, you know, what I described earlier about like some dark stuff that happened. Um, now I'm able to listen to it more and to identify like, okay, I gotta, I gotta, check them, check them, check mm. some things at the door. Do, so. Is there anything that you mourn about that past life? And, and I think I'm referring mostly to your training and the athletic endeavors. Like, is there anything that you mourn about that? Like the, the intense structure and, and seeing those gains that you would make and the, the performances that you would have at races when you were like, do you, do you mourn that? It's, it's a great question. Living in Bend, Oregon <laughs> and seeing it all over the place everywhere. Mm -hmm. Maybe I do a little. Um, 
that said, uh, Tracy and I were looking to move down to Oak Ridge next year. And having lived in Corvallis, where it wasn't this super endurance sports kind of hub where every, everything, everyone's doing everything all day, every day. I mean, to be out of that atmosphere and like to go to a little town like Oak Ridge or Corvallis where it's not about that, I just kind of out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. And I'm able to like just chill a little bit more. Um, but I don't mourn. I don't, I don't mourn a lot of it. I think it's a great question. I think it's a fair question given my, given my past history and like needing those results for reassurance and that sort of thing. But it's just been recently where I'm, where someone will post like a podium picture from Ironman or go to Kona or whatever. And I'm happy for them. I'm not sitting here being like, Oh, that could have been me. That should have been me. I didn't get my pro card. Therefore I'm a failure. Like I, and now that, that mindset was pretty persistent up until, yeah, I mean, pretty recently. Yeah. So, and so how, how did it shift? Like, so you, you're a switch guy. Like you, yeah. I, like you, I feel like I picture like a cartoon of like, you just turn on this switch, turn off the switch. Um, because I, I can envision that being a very difficult transition to go from that should have, could have to, I'm actually genuinely at peace. So did that, has that occurred through just time? Has that occurred through therapy? Has that occurred through the fact that you now have music, which is this whole other Mm -hmm. outlet to, um, you know, to, to take your mind away from that combination of all of those things? So I got, I got a guy. I got a guy. I like, I like people who have guys. Yeah. Um, Tracy has that guy too. Okay. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Um, he has been instrumental in the idea of bringing more awareness and bringing more just it's the sense of being to, to my life. Whereas, you know, thoughts are definitely a thing. They are a thing, right? And they can help fuel you going one way or the other. They can, um, help, uh, substantiate core belief systems. They can just perpetuate like all these just stories in our heads. Right. And so for me, I guess, I guess my, to weaponize the idea of just being like just being is, is probably the best way I can describe like how making that transition out of that all or nothing burnout kind of cycle. It's, it's made a much more manageable and much easier. Um, it's, it's a very simple way of doing things, but very complex because we're as, as human beings, like my mind is going all of the time. And if I can't stop it and just kind of like re, re, um, kind of examine it, understand that I'm going a mile a minute in my head, stopping the narrative, then have it restart. Like not having, having those gaps in my mental, you know, procedures every day helps me if we lengthen the gaps a little bit more and have a little more peace and stillness in between all those. For me, it's like manic behavior, manic thinking. It just, it makes everything easier. That's wonderful. And it's, it's, um, everyone needs a guy. So yeah. To speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone needs their guy. Yeah. The show is called, I could never do that, obviously. And you check so many of those boxes, you know, I, for, for me, I think your journey to sobriety is, is one of those that a lot of people would say, Oh God, I could never do that. That would be so hard. 
Um, I think your pursuit of your athletic endeavors, I think now pursuing music and even this, this new pursuit of peace mm-hmm. is something that a lot of us say, Oh God, I could never yeah. like, oh, oh, do you, what yeah. do you mean? Clear my mind. What do you mean? I need to have my mind racing because that means I'm being productive. So what, what do you, what would you say to people who, regardless of what it is, if somebody comes to you and says, I could never do that, what would you say to them? Why are you telling yourself that? Mm. Yeah. What's, what's the motivation behind that? And is there anything at this point that you would still say that to? I could never do that. I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it's a different narrative in my head now. And like with this music thing, um, here's a perfect example. I, a friend of mine, um, at the beginning of this year, she, or he, uh, he's like, Hey, you should reach out to this vocalist. Her name is Sarah DeWarren and she's an A-list trance vocalist. Right. And he's like, God, it'd be awesome if you could write a track with her. And instead of saying, I could never do that, I got on Instagram and I shot her a message. I said, hey, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. She responded and we're releasing a track together next month. And that's like, in for so for young producers, I hear all the time, like, oh, I can never, I can never work with that vocalist. I can never do that. Why not? Just do it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, cliche to say, just do it, but if you can, if you can really identify what the driving force is behind the narrative that's telling you, you can't do that, then I think you're, you're in a good spot to be able to succeed in whatever you want to do. And also I think something that's in there too is detaching yourself from the result because you could have easily reached out to Sarah and she could have been like, Oh man, thanks, but I'm busy. Or she could have never not responded at all. Right. Uh, and so you, you, you have to detach from what that reaction is going to be and just keep putting stuff out there. And I feel like that's the part that stops so many people from pursuing whatever it is, is they're afraid of what that result is going to be, whether it's rejection or quote unquote failure. I don't think there is such a thing, Yeah. but, um, but yeah, I, I think that that's great advice is just why not? Why not? Right. Final question. What, how do you define healthy these days? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can get addicted to anything, right? <laughs> yeah. You can get addicted to health. Yeah, yes, yes. Right? Eating. Eating, uh, not eating. Oh, uh, um, gosh, yeah. It's pro- probably for me, I mean, the, the, thing, the thing that best describes is just balance and just having a healthy balance. Well, healthy balance. Just a balance <laughs> between what you do how you go about doing it and just, and, and being a little more at peace when you make decisions, um, to do something. Um, but yeah, health is a very, it's a tricky word, right? Because people do get addicted to whatever it is being, whatever, being vegan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. been plant-based for a number of years and, mm-hmm. and I know people who are addicted to being vegan mm-hmm. and whether or not that's a good or bad thing, some of them are transferring addictive behaviors over. So, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think it just comes down to balance. Yeah. 
Any last thoughts or words as we wrap up? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would say, you know, I, I, I tell my story and I'm transparent with my story. Not to get that reassurance that I'm a good person, but to help other people know that they're not alone in their own struggles. And as dark as it can get, as lonely as it can get, there's always help. You just have to be willing to ask for it. Um, and I am here for people who are struggling with stuff, who are sitting in their own dark room with their cat with the shades drawn for a month at a time. Like, you need help. You ask. So. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah. Thank you so much for making yourself available and accessible, Spencer. His Instagram is at spencer.newell. And that's N-E-W-E-L-L. He is also on Facebook. And as he says, download his music, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your music fix. He is there. And uh, I promise you that kick drum will put you in one hell of a great mood. So cheers. And we'll see you next time on I Could Never Do That.